All right. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 12 is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, last time we talked about how uh, Paul said that God did this. God separated uh, gifts out to each person. Why did Paul say that God gave everybody some different gifts in the church? He compares us as a church to a body. Like, okay, so I have a body here, okay? I've got fingers, I've got toes. They do different things. Uh, some people incredibly can make their toes do finger-like things. I cannot, right? So, but, but I have different functions for different parts. My ears do something different than my eyes do. My nose does something different than my mouth does. They have different individual functions. Paul says that's like the church. And the church has different functions. And Paul says God did that on purpose. Uh, and so he, if you pick it up, uh, there was, but God put, uh, verse 24 of chapter 12, but God put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Okay? So, and why did God do that? Why did God put the, pot, the, the body parts together in the church? What does Paul say there? Does anybody remember what we talked about last week? Or you could just guess. That's fine too. Guessing's fine. Yeah. Yes. Different functions and, and different types of people. Like when you talk about the heart, you talked about there are parts that are more vulnerable in your body that does not make them less important. Is your heart vulnerable? Like if somebody stabbed you in the heart, that would be, that would be really, really bad for you, right? Does that mean your heart, because it's vulnerable and weak, is unimportant, unnecessary, unneeded? Of course not, right? So that's Paul's point there is that as you look at things, and, and, and we do that in church all the time, we find ways, we do this good Christian, bad Christian thing. You know, you're a good Christian, you're a bad Christian. I'm a better Christian than you are. Are you really? What, what does that mean? What, what exactly is a good Christian and a bad Christian? Uh, in a lot of ways, it's I feel like I'm a stronger Christian than you. I feel like I, uh, the Lord likes me better than he likes you, or I do more for God than you do for God, or whatever. And Paul, in, in that idea of a weaker body part, a more vulnerable body part. I feel like I'm emotionally stronger than you. I don't need as much protection. You're more sensitive than I am, or you're more prone to, uh, you know, if somebody attacks you, if you fall, then everything kind of falls apart. And and that just makes me feel vulnerable as a church. And we can't stand that. We don't want weak parts around here. You're only as strong as your weakest link and all that kind of stuff. And so we kind of look down and we find ways to look down on each other as you're not as good as I am. You're not as strong as I am. And Paul's point is we are one body. And God made us with all these different parts in some way because none of us have all the parts. None of us are the whole thing. None of us are the whole show because none of us are the point. Who is the point of what we do at church? The Lord Jesus Christ. We are his body. So what happens is people want to take, and the Corinthians in this whole book, want to take the glory for themselves. They want to be a big deal in church. They want a title they want a, a role. They want some kind of spectacular thing. They want to be the soloist on Sunday morning, or they want to be the, the, the head of this or the head of that, and they want something that's going to make them feel like something. The Corinthians, right? That does, fortunately, it never happens in church today. Nobody uses the church for their ego, ever. Um, but if they did, it would be against the plan of God, wouldn't it? Because it's not about 
looking at me. It's about looking at him. And so God designed the church to function in a multiplicity like that, in, in lots of pieces working together. How do we recognize that when we function as a church? What, what do we need to do? If that's true, that nobody can be a one-man band, that nobody can do it all by themselves, then what does that mean that how, how should be the norm of how we function as a church? Nobody out there doing it by themselves. Does that make sense? Too often what happens is we as a church take someone who's willing and say, great, and someone who's capable and say, great, go do that thing. And good luck with that. And let us know when you're done, when you're dead and you're ready to give up. Then we'll see if somebody else wants to do it or not. Like everything we do as a church as much as possible, we should be doing together in teams, in groups, with, with different gifts coming together. It is why from the very beginning and from the very uh, you know, top of our leadership structure, we don't have a one-man band. We have elders. We have a leadership team. Um, does that mean I think I'm stupid and I don't know what I'm talking about? No, I probably think I know more about what I'm talking about than you think I know what I'm talking about. Like I, you know, I'm pretty full of myself, but I know enough about myself to know that I don't know at all. And there's a lot of times that what God does is bring information through other people other than me to make sure that we function collectively instead of in individually. And that keeps all of us from acting out of our flesh, out of our, out of our pride. And so God has given us, in combination, greater honor. He says it, because He combined the, the members, it gives us greater honor so that there will be no division in the body. And those two things are joined. Number one, that there's greater honor. The greater honor is... Jesus gets the honor, not us. Not any part gets the honor. Jesus, because we are the body of Christ, gets the honor. That's the greater honor. So even weak parts get greater honor because they point to Jesus Christ. But secondly, so that there will be no division in the body. So that there is no fracturing and breaking of the body of Christ apart from one another. So that we come together and we cohesively uh, work together as one. And he describes that, and this is where we finished last time, he describes that as we have equal concern for one another so that the parts of the body will have equal concern one for the other. And he says, so that if one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. If one part rejoices, all parts rejoice with it. There is equal concern for one another. Equal to what? what, what when he says there is equal concern for one another, equal to what? Right. So my concern for you, according to Paul, must be, according to God's design, equal to the concern I have for myself because you are a part of my body. I'm connected to you, right? So just like if, if I have uh, an infection in my arm, my whole body feels it, right? When you, you've ever got like a, a chest cold? You were like, man, if I, my chest is just really bothering me. So, you know, my legs have stuff they need to do. So they're just going to leave my chest behind and they're just going to go run. They're like, no, your body suffers together. It's in it together, right? And so that's the idea of us as the body of Christ. We're in this together. And so if one of us suffers, if one of us hurts, we all hurt. If one of us is rejoicing and celebrating, we all celebrate. You know one of the most effective ways for that to happen? that we feel that that literally happens, that that's not put on, that that genuinely happens, that when somebody's hurting, I'm hurting. When somebody's celebrating, I'm celebrating. Do you know how that really happens organically in a church? When you pray for each other. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you put somebody down on your prayer list and you pray for them faithfully and then they suffer, you're right there with them, heart and soul, right there with them. 
You're joining in their suffering. You, you pray for somebody to, to, to see something happen, for God to come through, and then God comes through. You're up there on the mountain with them. You're, their victory is your victory, right? It's the way God knits our hearts together. We, as the body of Christ, have this opportunity to pray for each other and in praying for each other to be knit to one another. And so we would have equal concern for each other. All right, so let's pick it up there for verse 27 down to the end of the chapter. Uh, this is what Paul says. And this is what we'll look at tonight. It says this, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. All right, so Paul starts off here and he says, Now you are the body, and each one of you is a part of it. So he goes from the you, at the beginning is a plural you, like you, all of you. You are the body. All of you together are the body, and each one of you is a part of it, to the singular, from the plural to the singular there. What's he saying as he says, you are the body and each one of you is a part of it? What's he emphasizing when he says, each one of you is a part of the you? What's he emphasizing? Everybody's included, for sure. Nobody is on the outside looking in. If you have been saved and this is your church, then you are a part of this body. Uh, a lot of times people who are newer feel like they're, you know, I'm a new person here, so I don't really have my... If you're a part of this body, you're a part of this body. If you're like, well, I don't have big gifts, or I've failed really bad, or I would... If you're a part of this body, you're, each of you is a part of the body. So each of you is a part of the body. You're all included. That's part of it. What else? Why else is he saying each of you is part of the you? Everybody is important. Um, I would to God that we were really good at making sure everyone in our church family knew that they were really important. Wouldn't you? Isn't that a wish that you have before the Lord? That we as a church were spectacular in reflecting the importance God places on people when people come and join our church. Wouldn't that be awesome? And I think we're pretty good at it, but wouldn't you love to excel at it? Wouldn't you love for this to be a place where people come in and they are convinced that they matter because of how we treat them, because of how we speak to them, how we look at them, how we include them out? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be the power of God in someone's life? How often does our world find a reason to exclude? And they make big, big shows about being inclusive and all that stuff. But man, oh man, they are great at, you know, I'm on the in and you're on the out. It starts in school, right? They, all these little groups that find a way to exclude. And all the way through life, there's, there's just ways to say, well, you don't matter and you don't measure up and I'm making fun of you and all that stuff. Wouldn't it be great if the body of Christ, if our church, Hope Christian Fellowship, was fantastic at showing people how important they were because you, each one of you, is a part of the body. And Paul's just made this giant case about how much you matter because you're a part of the body, that we reflected that to people. I pray that that's what we will be uh, as a church. All right, so what he's saying is that as a body, we function together, and so every single one of us has a responsibility in this church. Every single one of us. What happens when parts of your body don't fulfill their function? 
What do you do? Your body starts breaking down? Sound like you have some experience with that, Ken? A little bit, okay. Yeah, if, 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 if your body is not functioning as it intended, it feels like I, you know, something's wrong here and it, it kind of slows me down. It, it, it lays me up sometimes, for sure. What else? What else happens if, if not all of my body parts are doing what they're supposed to? Yes. So if one part, an essential part, is, is not working, other parts compensate for that, and then it overworks those other parts, right? And then there's damage that sometimes gets done. Uh, if you, you like sprain your ankle or whatever and you're using the other leg, you can injure other things because of that and whatever. So there's that kind of adjustment. Your body still has stuff that you want to do, so you're trying to do it, but you're doing it kind of limping. And as you limp, you can cause more damage by overloading something that wasn't designed to take that kind of load because your body's not working together. And that's hard for us, isn't it? What's that mean? If you are not responding to the Spirit of God's call for you in this church, if you're on the sidelines and God wants you in the game, what's that mean you're doing to the body of Christ? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's. I mean, typical example is if God has called people to teach and watch our kids on Sunday morning, and someone doesn't show up or, or can't show up or whatever, that part's not functioning that day, and those kids wind up in the auditorium. You ever been behind cute kid? How much of the message did you hear? None, right? I mean, you're going to look at what's going on in front of you. So there's a function of the body, and when it doesn't function, it puts stress and distraction and all that stuff. The other thing is that the body uh, picture that, that Paul's using here, the body has a purpose. It's going to go accomplish something. Let's say it's an athlete. So your body as an athlete is going to go accomplish a task. You're going to hit a baseball. And as you go to hit the baseball, let's say you're injured. How, what's that going to do to your effectiveness as a a baseball player, as a hitter, if your body is injured when you're trying to hit the ball? You mean more effective or less effective? Less effective. What's our, as a body, what's our goal? What's our purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? Serve God? Other ideas? Right. We want to worship, serve God. I mean, those are the, the, the very big picture things. Functionally speaking, what does that look like? What should, what should be happening in our church? Like, what are wins, like weekly, daily wins for us as a church? Growing. What's that? Growing. growing. We should be growing spiritually, right? That should be a win. Each of us should be growing closer to the Lord and being conformed more to His image. The things in our life that are ungodly should be getting shaved off over time, by, by all the things the Spirit of God is doing, we should be recognizing as we open the Word or as we worship or get together in conversation in small group, ah, oh, you know, God's working on that in my life, and now I'm, I'm wrestling with it, I'm looking at it, all that stuff should happen. What are other kind of wins for us as the body of Christ? Growing Christians, yes. What else? Being here. Okay, that, those are practical steps that get us towards that. So people getting saved, Right? 
Is that a win for us as a church? Is that glorifying God, serving God, worshiping? People come into Christ, right? So these are functions, uh, I would say, for us as a ministry specifically, seeing God bring healing to people in their soul who have been broken in life, right? So you've got people who don't know Christ who need to, to, to become believers. You've got lots of believers who've been run over by a truck, and God, we want to see God's healing power and put them back together, break them free from chains of bondage. And, all. and then there are Christians who just, you know, healthy Christians, we just want to see them grow. We want to see all of that happen for the kingdom of God, right? We want to do as much as we can for the kingdom of God. So what happens when the body's not functioning, when, when part of the body's not working, and we're trying to hit that ball? We're less effective, and we all suffer together with it. In other words, I'm dependent on you. You're dependent on me. So I could get up on Sunday morning and, and have the best sermon ever, the best examples, the funniest jokes, and I get up here, but I'm dependent on you. How? Real simple. Be here. If you're not here, I might have the best message in the world, but it, it doesn't do anything. I'm dependent on you for the work of God to happen. Does that make sense? And, and it feels like, well, what's the big deal? The, the big deal is Paul, Paul says we're a body. So we're dependent on each other. We need to be together, to function together, and we need all of us on board. So if you're sitting off on the sidelines and not doing stuff, or you're not doing much, and you keep feeling this prompting of God, like, you know, this stuff that needs to happen here, start responding to that, because somebody out there is carrying the load that you're supposed to carry, and it's, it's destroying them to be making up for you. And we are, as a body, less effective in the calling we have to lead people to Christ, to put the pieces of people's lives back together in the power and the name of Jesus Christ, and to see people grow in strength and in wisdom and in the image of Jesus Christ. All of those things are happening to a lesser degree when we're not functioning right as a body. So it's really vital that we do that. Each one of you is a part of the body. Each one of us belongs. Each one of us is necessary. Each one of us is integral. And so when the work, when the body suffers, when, the, when, when people are opting out, then the work suffers, the purpose, the point of why we get together suffers. Does that make sense? Have you ever seen a, a church like that where, I hear this all the time, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That is, I'm telling you right now, it's not our church. There are not 20% of the people who do 80% of the work. Do you know how many people are involved in kids' ministry on Sunday mornings? Any idea? It's like 90 plus a lot of people, right? That's, that's a third of our church right there. So that, that's just for starters. Aside from all the people who do all kinds of other things around here, deacons and elders and teachers and whatever, that's just for starters. Um, so there's a lot of people involved, but I don't know that everybody's doing what God's asked them to do. I don't know that everybody's doing all that God's asked them to do. Some people, it might, their gift might be giving. Their gift might, as service might just be giving, you know? And if they're not doing that, the church suffers. Some people's gift might be to pray. And if they're not praying, we suffer. So it's not all about production in terms of we can see it with our eyes. Sometimes it's about just taking up the role God's given you uh, so that those things happen. All right, so then, then it says this. Verse 28, God has placed in the church. And he goes into this list. God has placed in the church. The word placed there could also be the word arranged, um, assigned, God is placed. So when you think about that picture, what you think about is how God put us together as a church. He's talking about parts of the body. He's talking about the different functions of the parts of the body. And he's saying God has arranged us where he wants us. 
So when God brings people together to be a church, when God says, I want you to be a church family, he, what he's saying is he puts in that church and in the right spots and in the right places and roles the people that he wants. God is the one forming the church. So let's apply that. If God is the one who makes the church, God is the one who designs the church, what does that mean for us about the church? How do I respond to that truth? What do I do? What do I think? What do I say? What do I not do? Okay, so if, if, God has assigned, if, if God's assigned me a place, then my response of faith is, whether I feel up to it or not, go do that thing, right? That's faith. That's walking in faith. So in one sense, when God places me, I step into it because God placed me there. Absolutely. What else? Any other thoughts? I don't think you ever want to challenge um, individuals in the position you see them in your church. But you're saying God put those people in those positions, hmm. whether it's leaders, ushers, deacons, uh, teachers. You know, if you have something you need to, to go to that individual, maybe like conversations, it could be a one-on-one discussion. Yeah. 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 I think the tone of how we interact is huge in that. If God has placed that person there, um, I think that's a really big deal. Now, that has been used at times to say you shouldn't say anything against a pastor and you shouldn't ever say anything against an elder. And, you, and there's some respect stuff with that for sure. But that's not like this kingdom thing. The idea is all of the people who have a role, our job is not to find somebody's faults and point them out. Right? What happens when somebody finds what you've done wrong, when you were volunteering to try to serve the Lord and somebody finds something you did wrong and comes and tells you, you blew it here. What's that do to you? Fine. I was just trying to help, right? I mean, it's, it's a, just a total human reaction. We all know that. I don't know anybody who goes, well, great. Thank you so much for, for telling me that. Now I can do it right. I, I don't know anybody who does that because it just feels so squashed. It feels like a hammer came down on you, right? So since that, we all know that, why is it so common for people in church to throw stones at each other, to have target practice on each other, to, to critique one another? Does anybody here think that somebody in this church has it all together? Is there one person you know of in this church who has it all together, all figured out right now? Anybody? Of course not. It's just not real. So we're all in process. That means that whatever role God has given you, if you step into it, you're not going to get it all right. And I hope that there is grace for you as you grow in it. I hope that we encourage you. I hope that we get behind you and support you as you grow in that role. It is way too easy, and I think way too fleshly, for me to make a list of all your failings and hand them to you so that you can work on them. Because really what that does is make me feel superior. You know, I just, I'm helping you out because I see things you don't, you know. I mean, maybe, maybe we should take a Sunday and give everybody a piece of paper and say, you know, take a look around and write down people's where they're messing up and just give it to them because then they'll know. Problem is they just don't know where they're messing up. No, the problem is that they're in process and they probably could use encouragement 
they probably could use someone to come alongside and say, I believe in what God's doing in your life. Keep after it. I know you're going to trip and fall. I know you're going to stumble. Keep after it. We are going to look for ways to stand behind each other. Someone comes to you with some criticism about someone else. What should your response be? Go talk to them. But I would even go further and say, stand behind that person and say, hey, listen, God has them there for some reason. And it's all of us mess up. So let's have some grace for that. Let's be an encouragement to that person. You don't know if, and I'll tell you right now, there are people involved in our church who come from other church scenarios feeling very criticized, very uh, beaten down, very belittled, uh, even destroyed. There are scenarios where people have been spiritually destroyed in, in a church service thing. And for them to step out and, and put out some effort in ministry, whether it be greeting or whatever, for them to put out some effort is a huge step of faith for them. And then for somebody to come up and tell them they didn't do it right, what did you just convince them? Not worth it. It's not safe here, right? So I think too often we come in with the, with the concept that the goal of this whole thing is for everybody to do everything right all the time. I don't want that as the goal from my life because I will fail every single day. How about you? So let's not make that the goal. Let's make it the goal that you're better off being around me in your spiritual walk and I'm better off being around you in my spiritual walk and day by day we get closer and closer to God and we become more and more mature and we feel more and more strengthened in what God's asked us to do. How about if that's our goal? That the body function in a healthy way to build upon itself and grow. Wouldn't that be better? So if God has placed us in the church, then we ought to be hesitant to do something that could easily destroy I'm not saying there's not a time for confrontation. There's not a time for criticism. But that cannot be our go-to move. That cannot be our knee-jerk reaction. That If you feel like there's something you need to say to somebody that's negative and wrong, there should be some prayer under that. There should be some convincedness of the Spirit behind that because it's way too easy for the enemy to twist that into destruction. Right? But if you feel like God's prompting you to encourage someone, go for it. Because way too often we think encouraging things and don't say them. Encourage people. Build them up in Christ. All right, now here's what I would take from God has placed us in the church. And I think this is a big thing in, in our world today. Um, it means we can't just make the church anything we want it to be. If God has designed the church, if God has placed people in the church, then I can't just say, well, this is what the church is going to be, or that's what the church is going to be, or I want it to look like this, or I want it to act like this. I have people who come in... Um, a lot of times with, with other church experiences where that were good for them, and because they were good and because they have a good heart, they want to put that other thing on us. Do you know what I mean? Like at my other church, we did this. And, and there's always good discussions about that, and, and we always have good, we just have a discussion tonight. It was a good, good discussion about that idea. But I can't just say, well, that church did it, so we should do it. Because I don't get to say what this church should be. Who's saying what this church should be? or who should be saying what this church should be. God should. And I, and I think what we get is we get like on the, uh, the hottest trend in church arc. You know what I mean? And it, it, it's well intended and well meant, but I think we need to get really serious about God, what do you want us to be as opposed to what did I just see? What did somebody else do? Or what did that people, what seems to be working over there or whatever. We as, as churches all around this country, and I don't, I mean, I don't know, 
personally of any particular church, but I'm just saying I, I see it represented at, in, in statistics, in stories, in anecdotes, and things like that, where a church adopts some you know, model that they see out there. There's a you know, purpose-driven model or a seeker-sensitive model or a whatever model out there. There's a model of this is the way church should be. And because it works for Andy Stanley or Lou Giglio or whoever, well, then we got to do that too because it works, right? But what, what did we miss there? God has designed the church. So I'm not asking what, what did God do for you? What, what's God doing in your church? I'm asking God, what do you want to do for me? And so all of that stuff, while all those ideas are good ideas and, and you can think through them, they go through this filter of putting them before the Lord and saying, God, is that what you want to do here? Some of what that means is what's going to happen here is going to be a reflection of the people here. So as God brings, for example, probably the most visible example, as God brings musicians, our music is largely going to reflect the people involved in music ministry. It's not going to reflect, you know, we don't go dictating it's going to be like this or like this or like this. It's a lot of, well, this is who we have. And since God placed them, that's what it's going to be. You know what I mean? So it may mean that week by week, you've got different styles of this or that, but they're going to kind of conform into one cohesive something that God's putting together. Not me, not you, not, not Dana. God's putting it together, right? And so we reflect on that. Um, the, the ways that we know God is doing something or, or starting something is God brings somebody who's built for that, and they say, God's put a call on my heart to do it, and then they go do it, and then it's fruitful because God placed them. Instead of me saying, you know what we really need? We really need a golf ministry. Let's go make a golf ministry. And we, you know, we're going to put that all together and do some big... That's, we don't need that, right? What we need is God raising people up, God stirring people's hearts, God placing people in their role. So I don't get to say, what should it be? Secondarily, and we can apply this to you as a believer as well, you don't get to say how God has made you. If you feel like your emotions make you weak, you don't get to opt out of them. If you wish you were more emotional and in touch, you can't turn that on. God made you how God made you for the purpose for which he made you. If you're shy, you don't get to be bold. You know? If you're someone who, who talks a lot, you, know, you, you might want to tone it down a little bit, but you're going to use that. God made you like that for a purpose. You know what I mean? So you have to know who you are, who God made you to be, not in some kind of envious way of looking over here at this person or looking over there at that person and try to shape yourself into someone you think is important. God says you're important and you're necessary how you are. So be that and then by faith walk forward into that. And so you don't need to copy other people. You don't need to invent something new. You can just be you in the body of Christ. All right, so, so that's kind of what I took out of that. Then we got this whole list here, and, and I, this list kind of confuses me. So as I read this, what do you think this means? Um, why do you think he puts these numbers on it? He goes, you know, he, God placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then, 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 then. Why, why is that there? What's this first, second, third thing? What's he doing there? What's, what's that mean? Priority like what? Okay, importance. First, second, and third feels like an importance thing, right? Okay. 
Okay, so there, there could be some structure there. Obviously, we don't have apostles around today, but there could be some structure there. Um, but when we talk about it like that, like, like authority and superiority, that really doesn't feel like it fits this, does it? Didn't we just get done talking about everybody's important and they're equally important? And it, so that feels like really out of the flow for all of a sudden to jump in here with first and second. And So if it's not about importance... What is it about? Okay. Yeah, submission. What do you mean by that? Right. There definitely is an element of you need to put yourself under what God is doing. Everyone needs to put themselves, which was not the Corinthians' strong suit. The Corinthians wanted to tell God where he was messing up and where Paul was messing up. and all. So there was definitely a, a challenge towards submission and humility in this, for sure. What was the, uh, the whole thing that started this whole thing off? I don't know if you remember it, but what was the whole thing, the whole discussion about gifts that started this off? What did the Corinthians really like as a, as a spiritual gift? What did they think were the important ones? Okay, so give me an example. Healing? Well, another really big one. Speaking in tongues. They liked the miraculous, I can, I can heal you, I can perform a miracle, I can speak in tongues, I can interpret tongues. And tongues seemed to be the real bugaboo, but they, they liked all of those really fantastic gifts, right? Did you see those in this list? Oh, well, first and second and third, no. But then, miracles, gifts of healing, then helping, guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Huh. So Paul is coming back to what he's been addressing them about, about their idea about the importance of spiritual gifts. Okay? So some, in some way, he's confronting them about what they want about what they're chasing after, these powerful gifts, these gifts that make them feel important, that make them feel superior, this gift of tongues, okay? And he's saying, okay, gifts of tongues are not all that. They're part of what God is doing, but they are not all that you've made them into. So when he starts with this first and second and third thing, he's using that in some way to confront them about their view of the superiority of tongues. And this is really interesting. When he says first apostles... Best thing I can tell you from, from as I've studied it is he's talking about how God unfolded the church. It began with 12 men, right? And then they lost one of them, and then they replaced him, and then they added one later on, right? So you had the 12 apostles, and Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, and all those guys, and then Judas Iscariot included, and Judas Iscariot betrays Christ and kills himself. So then they add... Matthias to the mix in Acts 1. So now you've got 12 apostles, right? And then later on, you see uh, Paul become a part of that. So you have a 13th apostle uh, as a part of the apostles. And so what did the apostles function as in the church? And when you look at the arc of the church, not, not like in this moment, what are they functioning as in the church, but in the history of the church, what were the apostles? First, they were the 
Everything was built on the apostles. These men who walked with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, these men are the ones who are entrusted with the story. They're the ones in the upper room who receive the Spirit, who preach at Pentecost and thousands of people get saved. They're the ones who start the revival in Jerusalem. The apostles are first, right? Then, so, and and interestingly enough, before I jump on from that, there is this uh, connection of the, uh, uh, the 12 apostles in the New Testament to a 12 in the Old Testament. What's the big 12 in the Old Testament? 12 tribes of Israel, right? So now, and, and I just, I don't know what this means. I just get geeky and fascinated by this kind of stuff. So I'm just going to say it to you. And you can be like impressed and then there's nothing you could do with it, but I think it's cool. Um, in Revelation 21, when New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, it talks about there are, 12 gates and, and 12 walls and 12 foundations, right? And on the, the foundations of the walls are 12, on the 12 foundations, there are the names of the apostles on the foundations of the city of Jerusalem. That's pretty cool. You know, like these apostles, except there's 13 of them, right? So I wonder who got left off or who shared. I don't, I'm going to be interested to see how that works out. But it's very similar because the other 12 of the city of Jerusalem, and it's either the gates or the walls or something, the other 12 is there's 12 of them, and it's the 12 tribes of Israel. Except the 12 tribes of Israel turned into 13. Do you know how that happened? It's, I mean, it's amazing to me that they're exactly the same. The 12 tribes of Israel turned into 13 because Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, both become separate tribes. And the tribe of Levi stays, uh, Levi stays a tribe. They just don't own any land. So you actually have 12 land-owning tribes plus one tribe that is dispersed throughout the land as the priests of Israel. You actually have 13 tribes of Israel just like you have 13 apostles. And then when you get to Revelation, it's 12 of each. So I don't know what that means. I just think that's cool. Are you impressed? Yeah, okay. Whatever. All right, so... Uh, this could, uh, the wording here, because Paul's not being super doctrinal, he's being more exhortational. So this wording could apply to the people who are part of that first wave, people like Barnabas and Silas and James, the pastor at Jerusalem and stuff, people who were core at the very beginning. It could apply to them too as apostles because the apostle, uh, an actual apostle is, or those 13 men, period, end of story. That's the apostles. But in the apostolic messenger uh, role to spread the gospel and to establish the church. Uh, some other people had pretty big roles. John Mark, uh, Timothy, there were some people that were involved in that stuff that were a big part of the New Testament. Uh, and we see some of their story in the New Testament. So it could be including them too. But then we have prophets. Okay, so now prophets in the New Testament are a lot like prophets in the Old Testament. What did prophets in the Old Testament do? Just give me a general sense of what you feel like prophets in the Old Testament did. Okay, we kind of start with prophecy in our minds proper, what's coming in the future. Some of them did that, not all of them. Okay, they gave messages from God. They received them and then gave them. Okay, what kind of messages did they get and give? Some of it was prophecy about the future. But what kind of things happening in the future? Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and we don't do a lot of Old Testament prophet reading, but if you went back to the book of Jeremiah and read through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's whole ministry, calling peep, the people of God on behalf of God to repent because judgment is coming. So something's coming, but his ministry is to say to them, respond to it now before it gets here. Jonah going to Nineveh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they repent and then the judgment doesn't come, right? So 40 days hence and God will destroy the city and they repent. Joel, a prophecy about judgment. There's judgment, judgment and, and prophecy about the deliverance of Israel. But a lot of prophets, Obadiah, a prophecy about Edom, um, Hosea had a whole uh, thing about how his wife, who was a prostitute, represented Israel, and Hosea represented God, and, and God was trying to show Israel how they were treating him through the prophet Hosea. Uh, so these are pictures. Ezekiel, man, if you read through Ezekiel, what you'd find is Ezekiel did all of this, like, gestures kind of stuff, like uh, charades. He's, like, do, he's laying on this side for this long, and he's laying on that side, and he's building a cone, he's putting bones out. He's, he's doing all kinds of weird stuff, and all of it in the town center as a message to the people of God. He is giving them a message. He wants those specific people to know. He's received a specific message for a specific time to specific people. And he's giving it to them so that they can turn to God, right? So some of that involves things to come, but most of it is a call for them to turn to God right now in view of what could come, right? So now as you apply that to New Testament prophets... Well, who were the New Testament prophets? Who had a message from God to specific people to call them to turn to God in view of some things that could be coming? Apostles and their partners, right? Like there was like first the apostles and then there was, it morphed into this more. You know, there's this, this New Testament church and the, and the people went out and were dispersed by persecution to go share the news with everybody. The prophets, right? It wasn't an official role in this sense here. It was, that's what they did. They went out and told the world about Jesus Christ, about the opportunity they had to turn to God because there was good news. There was something that God had done for them that they could turn to God and be saved. Prophets. Make sense? Okay. And their ministry happened built on the apostles. If you had the apostles as the foundation, then on top of that, the next you know, without the apostles, these prophets could not build. They are built on top of them. And then on top of them is built this role of teacher. Teachers are people who aren't receiving revelation from God. They're taking revelation that God has already given and instructing people with it, right? And so you see that being built on top of this idea of prophets, the apostle, prophet, teacher, first, second, third. Paul is putting them as, this is how God, when he says, this is how God designed the the, the church to function with all these parts and everything, he says, now God has designed the church to begin like this. Apostles, prophets, teachers. And what he's saying to them is, you've taken something that is built on top of all of that and made it like it doesn't need a foundation. You've taken the teachers and the prophets and even the apostles, they've challenged Paul as an apostle and said, we don't need any of that. We're going to go to Greek philosophy and we're going to figure out how, what the truth is. We don't need any of you people. You've thrown away your foundation. And he's saying, when you throw away the foundation, none of it works. It's like cutting out the internal organs of a body. It doesn't work if you lose the important foundations. Does that make sense? So he's showing them 
that what they really are after needs this stuff underneath of it in order for it to function and be, and be real. But they don't have the humility to embrace that. They just want to be whoever they want to be. And so he then goes through this whole, you know, the rest of this list, then, then, then. He talks about miracles, the ability to perform and call out miracles, gifts of healing. Um, does God heal today? Does God heal people today? Absolutely. Is there the gift of healing today? We'll talk about this, but I don't believe there's the gift of healing today. The, the difference between the two of those is this. If, if we get to the end here and we have prayer requests, we'll pray for anybody. And if there's some healing, we'll pray, ask God for healing. But I don't know of anybody on this earth who has the ability, the gift of healing, to go and call God's healing on that person and see it happen just because they called it. That's the gift of healing. Okay? And that was a, that was a sign gift. That was a gift that formed the church um, because it was spectacular, because Peter and John could go to the temple and pray. They can meet a lame man next to the, the gate beautiful. He can ask for money, and they say, we don't have any money, and, but here's what we have. Get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. Healing. They just call it out. You get up and walk. They didn't kneel down and say, God, please heal this person if it's your will. They said, get up and walk. Gift of healing. Right? We don't do that today. We don't have a service where after the service, if you want healing, come up and I will call out healing on you'll leave healed today. We don't do that, right? That's a gift of healing. That was active during this time. And do you think the Corinthians enjoyed that gift? Absolutely. You know, the gratitude that came their way if they had that kind of gift. Oh, you know, you saved my, my loved one's life and you, you, you made our life so much better because they can go back to work. And by going back to work, we can eat again. And I mean... You can imagine the gratitude that came from somebody who had the gift of healing, right? So they loved the gift of healing, the gift of miracles. Then Paul throws in here these two other gifts. Interesting. Before he gets to the gift of tongues, that they, they love the ability to speak different languages miraculously. But it's the gift of helping and the gift of guidance. Okay, now here's the gift of helping. The word means to take the burden off of someone else by putting the burden on you. Yay! So go find somebody who's heavy and take their burden and put it on you so they don't have it anymore, now you have it. The gift of helping. How popular do you think this gift was? That doesn't sound like fun, does it? Huh. That Paul, as he, after he says miracles and healings, then he says helping, and then he says guidance. And the word guidance there is the word to direct a ship, the ship's captain or ship's pilot, steering a ship talks about really about a gift of leadership or a gift of guiding a group of people towards what is right and that kind of stuff. It's a role of leadership in the church. They didn't like that too much either because that meant they had to listen to somebody else who was supposed to be leading them that God had called to lead them because he gave them the gift of leadership. We don't want that. We want to, we want to chart our own course. We want to do our own thing. So why do you think Paul mixed these gifts in with the gifts that they liked? After he went through the first, second, third, then he puts these five gifts together. Why does he mix in these, what they would think of as lesser gifts with the gifts that they really wanted? What's his point? What's he trying to say to the Corinthians about their gift ideas? Yeah. In, in a strong way, it is his way of summarizing, all the gifts are the same. All gifts are the same. I, 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 do we believe all gifts are the same? Yes. Do we know how that looks when we live that out, that all gifts are the same? That the same appreciation goes to the person who sang the song that really moved me today as goes to the person who took the trash out at the end of the service. Same thanks, same appreciation, same importance. 
Do we know how that looks? Do we appreciate one another like that? That's what he's saying. As he talks about the gift of helps right next to the gift of healing, that's what he's talking about. Right? They're all the same. What else do you think he's saying to them? Anything? What's that? It's all part of one body? Yep. They're, I mean, yeah, that's the, the, been what he's trying to be getting through to them is this is one body, function as a body. Absolutely. Anything else? I mean, it's kind of an insult to say the gift of tongues to them. The gift of tongues is the same as the gift of helps. So Paul says, if you think helps is nothing, then you think tongues is nothing. If you think tongues is something, then you think helps is something. It's his way of connecting their struggle in practical terms so that they can start to see. They may not, but he's trying to confront them so that they can see the equal value between them. And then he closes it. He kind of ends it with these questions. And what's he saying when he says, are all apostles, all prophets, all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? What's he saying? What, what's that, all those questions, what that's supposed to mean? Right. He's pointing out the fact that the answer to all those questions is no. It's rhetorical. No, not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all have gift of healing. So he's pointing out that not everybody has the, all the, the same gifts. Very significant for us in that there is no spiritual gift that everybody should have. There was a period of time in church history, uh, 40, 50 years ago, where it was popular to believe that if you were saved, you should have the gift of speaking in tongues. It was a sign of the baptism of the Spirit, right? And, the, and everybody should experience that. Right here, biblically, what would we say about that? Do all speak in the gift of tongues? No. That's the rhetorical answer is no, meaning it's obvious not everybody has that gift. And so there is no gift that is the earmark for believers outside of the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Spirit? Yes, then you're a believer. What spiritual gift does that mean for you? Can't tell you. That's, you've got to find that out before the Lord. And, and in the context of serving in the church, you'll find that out. So we don't get to make church whatever we want. We don't get to judge one another. We get to acknowledge God's placement, God's direction, God's timing even. Even as we talk about how God formed the church, it's the best way to form the church because God did it that way. But people could come up with a different way for forming the church than apostles and prophets and teachers. People could come up with a different, but this is the way God did it. And so when you look at the church, when we look at our church and how we're growing and forming, part of our faith walk is to say, we're growing as God grows us, first and second and third and then and then. It's God's work, not our work. So sometimes does that get frustrating? Yeah, that can get frustrating. But that's God's business about how fast and and in what order things go. Would I rather have had this before that? Maybe, but I don't get to choose this before that. I get to receive by faith whatever God puts in front of us, right? So what that means is sometimes there are going to be things in church that I wish were better or different. We grew faster. People were, you know, more responsive or praying harder or whatever. I, do I get to say that that's what has to happen? I get to receive what God's doing. Similarly, for your life, 
There's some stuff God's doing first, and then second, and then third. Do you wish that the fourth thing was the first thing? Lots of times. But God knows what comes first in your life. God knows what he needs to work on right now in you. And that's what he's working on. Maybe the problem for you is you don't want him to work on that thing at all. But God knows that the way to work on the thing you want him to work on is to go through that thing first. So surrender, like Kathy said, this is about submission in the church. This is also about submission individually before the Lord, about how God is unfolding his plan in my life. And, you know, I might like to have a better attitude or I might like to have a better uh, ability to win this battle or, or never struggle with that again or whatever. And maybe that's something that's just bothering me because I'm embarrassed about it or I'm frustrated by it. But God's over here working in this thing. And as long as I let God work in me and God's working in this thing, I can trust him that that thing's going to get taken care of in time. Because God has a first and then a second. He's building one on top of the other. And we need to let him build What happens when I don't is I get discouraged. I get deflated and and I throw in the towel. You know, God, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed for you to take this away or to make this different or change this or whatever. And it's not happening. And so there's no point. You must not care. Except God does care. He's over here working in the stuff that needs to happen first. So when somebody walks in, it's, it's why I hate the questions like, you know, if a gay person walked into your church, would you let them come to your church? What a ridiculous question that is. Are they a person? Of course they are. Do they need Christ? Of course they do. Of course they're welcome in our church. Well, what if they want to join your church? Like, what are we doing here? First of all, what I want to know is, is God at work in their life? You know what I mean? Is God working in somebody? Whatever their problem is. If they're a drug addict, if they're, if they're just somebody that's full of pride and all they do is go around and spout off pride, Am I going to kick him out of the church because they've got a sin problem? Because then we would have nobody here. So if God is okay, if God knows what he's doing, does God know what he's doing? And if God is working on them in his time, in his way, in his pathway, and they're responding, then I'm going to let that be till God gets to whatever it is that I notice because there's probably 12 things under that that he's working on before that. And I don't need to judge God and his time frame on that. If somebody comes in and they don't want God to work on anything, then our job as believers is to say, man, you need to give your life to Christ. Not so much to point out specific things, but to say the only way to live is to live trusting him, to submit it to him. And then let God do whatever he's doing in you. Right? Let, let the word of God change you. Let the spirit of God change you. That's the only way to live. But as far as what happens first, we don't get to dictate. Sometimes when people get saved, you probably know some people got saved. And when they got saved... Something went away, some, some pattern in their life just vanished from them. You know, maybe they, they gambled or, or you know, used substances or whatever and then got saved and it was gone, you know, or an anger problem just went away. That's great. That doesn't happen for everybody. There's some people that have been on their knees before the Lord. God, take this away, take this away, take this away, and they're still struggling with it. Is that because God likes one person more than another? No, it's because God knows what's first in their life and what's second in their life and what's third in their life. And he's at work. And as long as their heart is turned towards him and as long as they are letting God work in them, God will keep moving them forward at the right pace at the right time. And just like Philippians tells us, he who began the good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is guaranteed that we are sanctified and glorified one day with him forever. God knows what he's doing. 
And since God knows what he's doing, we'll let him be the one who decides what's happening. Right? All we do is we call one another to look to him and give our lives to him in complete trust. All right. So next week we'll get to to, uh, chapter 13 and we'll start to look at this topic of love, uh, what love is and what love is not, uh, and see how we do with that.